Please turn your Bibles to Exodus 25 with me as we continue making our way uh, through the Pentateuch. And as you turn there, just want to encourage you, uh, as, as Ben did earlier, to be a part of our, our counseling, uh, biblical counseling conference this week. It's uh, one of our, our hopes that every person who's a part of Bethany Community Church would have the ability to, to care for the needs of one another, and so I encourage you to come to that equipping uh, conference this weekend. As you turn to Exodus 25, we're looking at Exodus's, Exodus chapters 25 through 31, and this is a section describing the, the plans for the tabernacle, and really, we've looked at the Book of the Covenant uh, two weeks ago, and now the rest of the Book of Exodus is about uh, worship by the people of God, sometimes good sometimes poor, but this is what we're, we're looking at now as we come to the book of Exodus. And we're going to read just the, the introduction to this section. So all, all seven chapters here, 25 through 31, are talking about the plans for the temple. And we're just going to, to read the beginning verses the, this morning and kind of work our way through the seven chapters very quickly in the rest of our time together today and uh, draw some principles that help us understand how we can uh, learn about God through the study of his tabernacle. And so if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version again, uh, the introduction to this section dealing with the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. Verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. You may be seated. May God be glorified through his word today. And, and Father, that would be our request this morning, that you would be glorified through our study of of your word, that you'd allow our hearts to be transformed by the good news of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. My kids like to tease me for being a little on the uptight side, and that should come as no surprise to any of you who know me or my children. And uh, this, this past week, I kind of gave them a, a great opportunity. I, I said, okay, you guys are, are teasing me for, for being a little bit uptight, but can you think of specific ways that I'm uptight? Uh, and, and they could, it turns out. Uh, quite, in fact, a lot of them, and very quickly, it was astonishing how quickly they had uh, these, these things to, to tell me about, almost like they'd been pent up with this desire to kind of let me know some of the areas that I'm a little uptight on. Now, I'll share a couple. We don't have time for all of them uh, this morning, but I'll share a couple of their illustrations, and I'll, I'll tell you what they said, and then I'll, I'll give a little, maybe just a little commentary to help you really understand 
uh, my side of things in these, in these issues. And so, for example, uh, one of the things they mentioned, they said, well, Dad, you're a little uptight on the, the phone chargers and the phone cords, like where we put those. And, and that's true, except I don't like to play a treasure hunt every night where the treasure is a phone cord and all the clues for the, the treasure are asleep in their beds. Uh, the, another thing they mentioned, they said, Dad, you're, you're kind of upset about eating, or uptight about eating in the car. Uh, again, you know, I call that uh, using Daddy's car seats as napkins. You know, they eat the French fries and kind of wipe their hands on the seats. And yeah, kind of, kind of, I am uptight about that. They, they mentioned, they, they said, Dad, you're kind of uptight about sticks of butter, which does seem a little odd. But what you have to understand is, is my children are starting like a, a museum collection of butter. And they'll take some of the butter out, they'll use it, and then they'll hide it somewhere in the fridge and start a new stick of butter. And so we, we've, we've talked about that before, sure. Um, they, said, they said, Dad, you know, you're, you're kind of uptight about the lights, turning off the lights, or, or as I call it, subsidizing the energy industry, energy industry which, yeah, I've, I've mentioned that to them before as well. Uh, one of the kids mentioned you're kind of uptight about uh, leaving the toilet seat up, but some other members of the family are on my side on that one, so they, didn't, they weren't all... An agreement on on that one. How much you value something is is revealed by how you treat it. And I would imagine that some of you, maybe most of you, as I was sharing some of these examples this morning, were thinking to yourself, "Oh, those poor children! Um, I can't believe they're in such an environment where this this dad is uh, so uptight about valuing things like sticks of butter." Maybe I can have these children come stay at my house for a little while, and I'll let them play with all the butter they want. Or maybe that's some of you this morning. Think, boy, that you know, Daniel is really uptight. But uh, some of you, a smaller, blessed minority, are on my side, right? You're like, yeah, yeah, Daniel. Why are people like that? Why don't people value things the way they should? Now, here, here's the truth. My kids and I, we laughed about this a lot. We were, we were joking. But but here's here's the truth of the matter that I will readily admit. There are some things. In, in my life that I value way too highly. And because I value them too highly, I treat them with a, a reverence they don't deserve. Okay? Now you could, you could, in a different sermon maybe, make the argument that perhaps my children don't steward things the way they always should, but that's not the point I'm going to make this morning. Much more beyond that. How you value something affects how you treat it. And there are a couple things that I, I think that you would agree with me that we don't value highly enough, that we don't treasure highly enough. We don't treasure Jesus highly enough. We don't treasure his church highly enough. We don't value worship highly enough. And our lack of valuing those things highly enough affects how we treat them. And this morning we're coming to this section of Scripture describing the construction of a tabernacle. And we're going to see as we look at this this illustration of the tabernacle in these chapters, we're going to see that God values Jesus, God values his church, and God values worship. We see that in the way that he treats his tabernacle and calls his people to treat his tabernacle. 
as we look at the tabernacle through the, the lens of the cross, what I, I hope happens is I hope that it causes us to treasure Christ and to treasure his church, which will affect how we treat both. That's kind of my goal for our time together this morning as we look at these instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. That you and I would, as we look at the tabernacle, treasure Christ, treasure his church, treasure worship, and that would affect how we act. So let's, let's go ahead and dive into the first principle here that I want us to think about. Three principles we're going to look at this morning to help us understand the tabernacle through the lens of the cross. The first principle is this. The tabernacle proclaims the person of Christ and his work. The tabernacle proclaims the person of Christ and his work. As we look at the tabernacle, we see a physical object. As the people of Israel constructed the tabernacle, they were constructing a physical object. And yet, this was a physical object that proclaimed spiritual truths. This physical object was a a shadow. It was an illustration to proclaim the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let me just share with you two passages, and then after I share with you these two passages, we're going to kind of go through a kind of a whirlwind outline of these seven chapters. So one passage is here from Exodus, what we just read. Listen again what Jesus, what God says in verse 8 to Moses. He says, let the, the people make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you, and he's talking about something that he's going to show Moses on Mount Sinai, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. And so the tabernacle is a, an illustration. It's, it's, a, it's according to the pattern that God has given Moses, but it's an illustration, a physical illustration of spiritual truths, specifically the truth concerning Jesus Christ and his work. Let me Read, with, read to you another passage from the book of Hebrews, and we are going to be in the book of Hebrews a lot this morning as we try to understand the perspective of the tabernacle from the, the New Testament. Here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They, that is the priests, the writer of Hebrews says, they serve as a, a copy a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, and he quotes what we read here in Exodus, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, what we see here in the tabernacle is, is a shadow, an illustration of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let me kind of walk through the different things that are part of the tabernacle, the the building of it, instructions for the building of it. And then I'm going to to try to go through these quickly. I'm going to show you a couple pictures really quickly, and these are from the ESV Study Bible. And as you see these these pictures, I might stop for a second and kind of read a New Testament passage that illustrates these things. But here we go. The tabernacle. We begin in chapter 25 with what we read. There's the offerings for the tabernacle. Then there's the the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to talk more about this later, but here's kind of a a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. This was in the most holy place. So there was was, uh, different sections of the tabernacle. This Ark of the Covenant is placed in the, the most holy place, a place that only the high priest could enter once a year. And in Hebrews... 
in Hebrews, it says in chapter 9, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Then later in chapter 9, it says, It was necessary, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So in other words, there's all these things, we're going to keep talking about these different things that are, that are in this, this tabernacle and part of the tabernacle complex here. There are these different things and they had to be purified through these rites, but he says Jesus provides a better sacrifice. He says Christ has entered not into, hold, this is Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24, Christ has entered not into, the, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In other words, again, as we think about the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is seated, it, it points us to Jesus. The table for the bread of the presence occurs in chapter 25, verses 20 through 30. What does Jesus say about himself? He says, I'm the bread of life. The next thing we see here in these, these verses, and there's a the picture of the, the uh, table of the bread of the presence. Then there's the lampstand. There's a picture of the lampstand here too. This is in chapter uh, 25, verses 31 through 40. And again, Jesus calls himself the, the light of the world. There's a tabernacle in chapter 26, verses 1 through 37. Here's kind of a, a picture of the, the tabernacle itself. And you can see there's that, that front area, and then there's a curtain, and then well, there's a curtain, and then this, this, this first area, and then there's the which is called the holy place, and then there's a, a curtain then where you go into the, the most holy place. The most holy place. The tabernacle was about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. And as you go through this, these 37 verses, it talks about the curtains, the tent, the frames, the crossbars, the, the plan of the tabernacle, the curtain, and the entrance to the tent. Now, there's, there's so much we could say here, but let me just, just, just the curtain, let me just read to you from the book of Hebrews again, what the writer of Hebrews says about the curtain. It says, we have this as a sure, this is Hebrews 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy place, says, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The, the curtain is this physical object that points us to the spiritual reality that, that Christ's flesh was sacrificed on our behalf. We could go through many more of these things, and, and we won't this morning, but hopefully in the months, years to come. 
The next section in the tabernacle describes the altar of burnt offering. And here's a, a picture of the altar of burnt offering. Again, these are all from the ESV study Bible. This is, uh, this is described in chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. And of course, we know that Jesus is this, this perfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Do you see what's happening as we see the different elements of the tabernacle? These are physical reminders that the the people, as they engaged in worship of God, had about who Jesus is. On a, on a daily, a weekly, a monthly, a yearly basis, there are different things that they are doing that are conveying some truths over and over again to them. They are constantly being made aware of their own sinfulness, of their failure to be obedient to this covenant that they have made with God. They are constantly being reminded of God's otherness, their separation from God because of their sin. They are constantly being reminded of the the holiness of God and his righteousness. They are constantly being reminded of the need of a blood sacrifice to deal with sin, and they are constantly being reminded of God's graciousness to dwell with them despite their sin and his provision of a means by which they can be in relationship with him. Those are things that they are being reminded of on a daily, a weekly, a monthly, a yearly basis. As we think about the altar here, I want to just encourage you with this this as a little bit of an aside. The tabernacle here serves as an illustration, a shadow, a picture of Jesus that God himself gives. Be very, very careful about where you get your pictures of Jesus from. Be very careful the illustrations you allow to enter your life to describe the person and the work of Jesus. There's a, a movie coming out this weekend that I've, I've talked about, the, the, book, the book, the movie was based on, I haven't seen the movie yet obviously, but it, the, the book was called The Shack and the movie has the same name. And I know that there are some, some Christians who have told me that they have really benefited from, from reading this book and they, they talk about how it speaks to them about God's love for people in the midst of, of crisis. And, and of course, that is a, it's a good message that God loves those who are suffering and I think that's an important thing to remember, and so I'm glad that God has used it in that way. But as I've shared before, I have some, some real grave concerns about this book. And my concern is I want the illustrations we have of Jesus to accurately portray his person, his work, his character. Tim Keller this past week, I read an article by him, and he said it far better than I could. He's talking about the shack, and he says, here's my main problem with the book. Anyone who is strongly influenced by the imaginative world of the shack will be totally unprepared for the far more multidimensional and complex God that you actually meet when you read the Bible. In the prophets, the reader will find a God who is constantly condemning and vowing judgment on his enemies, 
while the persons of the, of the triune God of the shack repeatedly deny that sin is any offense to them. The reader of Psalm 119 is filled with delight at God's statutes, decrees, and laws, yet the God of the shack insists that he doesn't give us any rules or even have any expectations of human beings. All he wants is relationship. The reader of the lives of Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and Isaiah will learn that the holiness of God makes his immediate presence dangerous or fatal to us. Now someone may counter that because of Jesus, God is now only a God of love, making all talk of holiness, wrath, and the law obsolete. But when John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, long after the crucifixion, sees the risen Christ in person on the island of Patmos, John fell at his feet as dead. And here's my point. We need to be very careful who we allow to shape our understanding of who Jesus is. And an altar where a sacrifice has to be made because of sin and, and, and sin separation is a picture that God provides for us of, of who Jesus is. We need to make sure we listen to the pictures that he gives us. Let me go through the outline, the rest of the outline real quickly here of, of this section of Scripture. There's, then there's the courtyard of the tabernacle, and here's kind of a picture of, of that and how it's, how it's laid, off, laid out. It would have been about 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. There's next section talks about the oil for the lampstands. That's in chapter 27, verses 20 and 21. Then there's the priests and their garments described in chapter 28. And here's kind of a, a picture of what uh, those would look like. Very snazzy dressing, of course. And then the next section, chapter 28, or in uh, uh, 29, describes the consecration of the priests. Then we see in chapter 30 the uh, the um, atonement, I'm sorry, the altar of incense, and there's kind of a picture of the altar of, of incense there. And then there we have the rest of this section. There's the atonement money, the basin for washing, the anointing oil, incense. There's a section describing Bezalel and Aholiab being set aside for the construction of the tabernacle. There's some words on the Sabbath and then kind of a conclusion. Now, again, it's clear to the Israelites that things that they're doing are, are shadows, are, are images, are illustration pointing, pointing to something else. Those things come through very clearly. The sinfulness of the people, the separation of the people because of, this, of their sin, the otherness and holiness of God, the graciousness of God in providing a sacrifice by which they can be in relationship with him. All these things are illustrations. Let me, let me show you a, a picture. The tabernacle is a, a shadow. It's, it's an illustration. Uh, here is, is a picture. This is an aerial photograph. This is from the 2005 National Geographic. It's kind of a famous photo. Maybe you, you've seen it. But you see those, those black shapes there on the ground. You kind of look at it at first. You think, oh, those, those are camels. Those black shapes are not camels. They're shadows of camels. Here's kind of a, a close-up. And here's the next picture. You see, you zoom in a little bit closer, and you see, oh, the, the white things are the, the camels. The, the black things are the shadows of the camels. Now, you look at that picture, and as you look at it from above, you say, okay, 
because I see this, this black shadow, I may not be able to see the camel very well because they're so tiny, but the shadow lets me know that there's something of substance there. If I were to go down onto the ground and I needed to cross the desert, I couldn't ride a shadow across, right? I need to get across the desert. I wouldn't say, let me ride this shadow across the desert. I'd look at the shadow, look up. Here's a camel. The camel's going to get me across. The people of Israel had gotten confused by Jesus' time. And, and even the next chapter in Moses' time. They looked at the shadow and, and they thought the shadow was the substance. Instead of helping them understand, and, help, and instead of causing them to understand, okay, the, the shadow is pointing me to something deeper, these spiritual truths that I need to be aware of. They'd miss that. You and I are in danger of pursuing shadows as well. You know, God describes his, his created world sometimes in, in using similar language. There, there are things that God provides us that, that are material things that should cause us, these created things that should cause us to worship our, our creator, the, created, the creator of all created things. C.S. Lewis calls the world that we live in the shadow lands, the, the, the relationships that we have, the marriage relationship, the, the, the family relationships, the relationships with friends, all those things are, are shadows of a, of a greater reality. The physical things that we have, money and possessions, all those things are, are shadows of something greater. And the danger that you and I have is that we live in the shadows instead of seeing the shadows as pointing to reality. The tabernacle is designed to help us understand spiritual truths, the, the person, the work of Christ. Here's the second principle I want us to think about. Number two, the tabernacle proclaims the beauty and the value of Christ's church. The tabernacle proclaims the beauty and the value of Christ's church. Look at the beginning of this, this section with me again. God says he wants these, these contributions from the people. He says, do this so that we can construct this sanctuary. I want to dwell in the midst of the people. Do this exactly. And then the first thing that he describes is this, this ark, the, the ark of the covenant. This ark is this, this furniture in the, the most holy place. It's the only furniture in the most holy place. And it's, it's about three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, two and a quarter feet high. And we see here that the people, verse 11, they're told to overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. Make it a molding of, of gold around it. And there's, there's rings through which they're to put these acacia wood poles. And the poles are to be overlaid with gold, it says in verse 13. And, and they're to put in these rings, and they're to never touch the ark. The, the poles are to stay in these rings. And then inside the ark is the, 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 are to be put the Ten Commandments, and other things are going to be placed in there as time goes by. And then verse 17 says, you shall make a, a mercy seat. And that mercy seat is, is really, another phrase for it is an atonement cover. And so this cover goes exactly, the dimensions of the cover are exactly the same as the ark, and the cover goes on this ark, and then it's the atonement cover that the presence of God is to, is, to, is to be around in a special place. It says 
in verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on, or the atonement cover, on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Verse 22, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so this ark of the covenant is supposed to be this place where where God dwells with his people in a special way. And as you see this described, you can imagine the, the awe that you would feel as you thought about this place. There's a reverence that you have as you, you see the most holy place described. This is an amazing thing. God's presence is among his people in a special way. It's a, it's a most holy place. It's a fearful thing to be in his presence and behold his glory. Reverence is demanded here. As you see other objects described in these chapters, as you leave the most holy place and as you go into the the courtyard and other places, you can build with bronze, you you can build with silver, but in the most holy place, only gold will suffice. The most holy place is a precious place. And this atonement cover, this this place where God dwells with his people in a special way, reveals himself in a special way, is a a holy and a a reverent place. Now, what does the New Testament say about the dwelling place of God? Listen to what the New Testament says about the church and God's presence. As we come to the New Testament, we understand that we are the place where God's presence dwells in a special way. John chapter 14, Jesus speaks of the Spirit and he says, The world can't receive the Spirit. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's John 14, 17. Ephesians chapter 2 says you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, a what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This, this most holy place, this place where God dwells in a special way is a place of, of reverence and awe. And as we think about it, there's, there's a sense of fear. Now, here's the amazing thing. You want to grasp that reality in, in the age of the church? Where, where is the most holy place? Where is the place that God dwells in a special way? It's with us. It's with the people in this room. As you and I gather together as the the people of God, as we exist together as the people of God, God's presence dwells in our midst in a special way. Second Corinthians three, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, and we all and, and he goes on in verse eighteen and he uses some of the same language to describe Moses in the tabernacle. 
And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. Revelation 22, uh, 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And where, where does, does God's building dwell? It's with his people. I would, uh, I've already, I was told last week and the week before that if I didn't mention this in this passage, it would be pastoral negligence. You can't mention a passage on the Ark of the Covenant without talking about Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> apparently. But you know, there's that scene at the end of the movie, for those of you who've seen that, that movie from the 80s, where Indiana Jones and, and Marion are, are, are tied up and there's the, the Nazis have gotten the Ark of the Covenant that they've, they've uncovered and, and Indiana Jones tells her, he goes, you know, look down, don't look up. And so they, 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 the, the Nazis move the, the uh, cover off the Ark of the Covenant, the, the atonement seat off the Ark of the Covenant, and then, you know, these, 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 these things, these angels of death or something come out and, and destroy everyone who looks at them. Steven Spielberg said he had lots of ideas for what could come out of the ark, but you know, there was limited technology at the time, which seems fair. It does seem like a big CGI thing to capture the glory of God. But where do we behold the glory of God, really? How can you behold the presence of God in his church? Not only do we encounter God, but he indwells us. We become a dwelling place for God himself, not just as individuals, but as a community. Now, here are some applications for that. Let me just give you kind of three thoughts for application as we think about this truth that the tabernacle proclaims the beauty and the value of Christ's church. Application number one would be this, pursue holiness within the body. You and I must be committed to individual and corporate holiness as we are part of God's dwelling place. As we encounter the descriptions of worship, the descriptions of this most holy place, there's a sense of of reverence and holiness and understanding of of God's otherness. And now, as as you and I are are part of the community of faith, we say, you know what? Um, I, I need to be pursuing holiness. I'm a place where God, Yahweh himself, dwells. I need to be very concerned about my individual holiness. Now, there are, of course, some problems when I say that. One problem when we say we need to be pursuing corporate holiness is that we can say, you know what? It's, it's hypocrisy time. <laughs> I don't want people to know how unholy I really am, and so I need to convey an image of myself that isn't true, and so we become hypocrites. The other danger that can exist is that we say, well, I just want to be real. <laughs> and when we say, I want to be real, what we're saying is, I just want to kind of lay all my, my, my baggage, my, my sin out there, and I don't want to really deal with it, and how dare you call me to deal with my, my sin because, hey, I am being real. But both hypocrisy and, and a false realness are, are lies that we are deceived by that prevent us from, from really pursuing holiness. And what God calls us to do as part of his dwelling places is, is to pursue true holiness, 
to say, look, I, I want to be transparent with people who love me and, and where God dwells. And I, I want to say, look, here's, here's some sin that is preventing the church from being holy as it ought to be. Brothers and sisters, help me deal with this. Father, help, help me deal with, with this, 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 these wrong thoughts about who you are, about who I am, about how, as I pursue the shadows instead of the substance, help me. Second application would be to, to grasp the preciousness of the church, the, the preciousness of this body. Whitney and I were kind of talking through this, this section of Scripture, and, and I, was, I was talking about, you know, it just, it's just amazing how much, how much went in, into these buildings and just financially all that they were giving to, to build these buildings. And I was talking about, you know, why? You know, why that much? I think it's, it's about God's holiness. And then Whitney and I began talking about, well, mate, what does that say about buildings today? Does that mean we need to be more ornate in our building? And, and Whitney had a, had a great point that I think is exactly right. She said, isn't the ornateness in the tabernacle designed to illustrate God's value and, and, the, and his beauty? But, but now that, that we, that the church, that the people in the church are the temple, the, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, doesn't that mean that we need to be seeing them as precious and, and giving toward one another, recognizing our, our emotional, our, our financial, our physical obligation to invest in one another. And I think she's exactly right. We need to, as we look at the tabernacle, we see God proclaiming the preciousness of the place where he dwells. And look around you. As you look around you and you see the people who are in this room, the people who are part of your community of faith, they're precious. They're valuable. Another application would be the need to preserve the unity of the body. The unity of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's this there's these verses that sometimes I think we read and we think, oh, God's talking about me specifically, me individually. Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And, and you say, well, that's, that's me. That's me as an individual. But Paul is using the plural there. Now, it's true that God does uh, dwell with us in a special way individually. Christ is in me. I'm, I'm in Christ. That's certainly true. But, but Paul here, I think, is he's speaking corporately. He dwells, in, he dwells in you. He dwells in you, Bethany Community Church. And then there's this, this, this powerful, powerful verse that should cause us to tremble as we think about the relationships that exist in this church. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, Bethany Community Church, are that temple. What does that mean? That means I need to see the preciousness of Christ's church and I need to understand that the destruction of Christ's church is a serious offense because it is a place where God himself dwells. An attack on the church, an attack on my brothers and sisters in this church, an attempt to, to uh, cause disunity in this church is an attack upon God and his holiness itself. Now that doesn't mean that that disagreeing with leadership is an attack on God. It doesn't mean that disagreeing with, with one another is an attack on God's holiness, but it means 
attempts to cause disunity in the church, attacks on other, belie- attacks on other believers, not disagreements, attacks on other, on other believers, is, is an attack on God's holiness. Imagine, so you know, think of the picture of the preciousness of, the, of this most holy place. Imagine someone having the audacity, the, the blasphemous audacity to walk to the tabernacle and to begin to, to tear it down. Imagine someone having the audacity, again, the blasphemous audacity to go into the most holy place and to, it's hard to even say it, to knock over the Ark of the Covenant and, and to spit on it. You wouldn't dream of doing that because of its holiness, its preciousness. Brothers and sisters, this church is where God dwells. We need to see the beauty and the value of Christ's church and preserve it. Here's the the third thought here, third principle. And again, we'll we'll talk more about this in, in coming weeks. But just to touch on it, the, the tabernacle proclaims the awesomeness and the, the joy of worship. You come to chapter 30, kind of more towards the end, and the Lord is talking about this, this incense that they're to, to burn. He says in verse 37, The incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. And then he as we go through the, the Old Testament, we see the incense is a, a picture of, of worship, a picture of the prayers of God's people. Psalm 141, verse 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 says, there were gold bowl, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, again, there, there's more to get to than I, I can this morning. We'll, we'll get to it in, in, in coming days, Lord willing. But here's what I want you to think about. The worship that's described here in the tabernacle is very precious to God. There's, there's a carefulness to it. There's, there's instructions to how it's done. There's a reverence. As you and I engage in worship of God together, th- there needs to be that reverence. Now, it looks different in different cultures, and, and how this is expressed, I, I think, changes sometimes from, from culture to culture in terms of our heart attitude always needs to be reverent, and then how that, how that plays out changes. But I would just encourage you to be careful. I can remember a, f- a few years ago, maybe it was about 10, maybe 12 or 14 years ago by now, um, I can remember the first time that I was listening to a pastor and he used, he used the word dude to refer to God. And I can just remember being incredibly shocked by that. Now, I've heard it many times since then. I don't know if always in reference to calling God a dude, but there was just a sense of, boy, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with that. And as, as our culture changes, as we become a, a more casual culture, how we reflect worship of God and reverence may, may change in terms of its, of its outward appearance. But I would encourage you, to, to, as you, as you think, as you conceptualize what we're doing on, on a morning coming together, it's not that we have to be, you know, you know if, I, if I'm not completely stiff, it's not real worship. But our, our heart attitudes are ones of, I see joy in being in God's presence, and yet at the same time, I'm aware that I'm in God's presence. I'm aware of his otherness. 
I'm aware of his beauty. The worship here is costly. The worship described here is careful. Oh, so careful. Aaron's sons are going to to die because of their failure to be careful in worship. The worship here is is committed. Without those things, a, a costly, careful, committed worship, without those things, it's not real worship, is it? As we look at the tabernacle through the lens of the cross, what do we see? We see the beauty of Christ. We see the value of the church. We see the, the, the worth of worship. And as we see those things, it should affect how we act. As we understand their value, it affects what we do. It affects how we treat Christ, how we treat his church, how we treat worship. The beauty of the good news of the gospel that was proclaimed in the tabernacle is that Jesus Christ pays for our failure to worship him rightly, to view him rightly, to view his church rightly, to view worship rightly. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I would invite you to do so even this morning, seeing in the tabernacle the beauty of Jesus, the sufficiency of his work, and trusting in him alone for your salvation. Let me pray for us. And Father, again, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the ability we have through the work, the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, to enter into the most holy place, into where you are, that, that your son, Jesus, through his death, has, has torn the curtain apart, and now we have the ability to, to be with you. We thank you for that. We, we pray that our trust would be in your son, Jesus, in his work, and that our relationships with one, with one another would re- reflect the beauty of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.